0: Oh, every time I offer to do this I'm like it'll be fine, it'll be fine and it's always a lot more than I think it will be in terms of preparation. Am I right, Eduardo? Am I right? Well, Will's not here this morning, but yes. Um, But it's also this extreme uh, privilege and joy to be able to dig in to the Word of God and so I'm excited to do that together this morning. Um, So let's Let's dive right in. We've been in Hebrews. We're in the book of Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews since Easter, just kind of going through the entire book, which we've actually learned is a sermon. Um, And do you all remember the theme of the book of Hebrews that we've been talking about? We've actually got it. Jesus is better. better. Jesus is better or greater. And what's the second part of that? Stick with it. Stick with it. Exactly. Jesus is greater. Stick with it. Like the whole book can be boiled down to that phrase. But greater than what? So we've actually got a little chart here, um, because the book does go through a list, a number of different things. So chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is greater than angels. And that seems like a really bizarre place to start, until you realize that there was this tradition in um, Hebrew thinking um, that the angels actually mediated the law to Moses, who then gave it to the people of God. So saying that Jesus is greater than angels is a really big deal, because that, in a way, is saying that Jesus is greater than angels. Than the law which is the whole foundation of the israelite identity and then in connection with that jesus is greater than moses who delivered the law right greater than joshua who ushered the people into the promised land greater than the promised land itself which was this place of sabbath rest as will taught us um, and then in chapters 5 through 7 jesus is greater than priests and priests are remember the group of people that is set aside to go in between, to mediate between God and people. So to represent God's desires to people and to represent people's needs to God. And Jesus is greater than those. And then right now today we're in chapter 10, which is the very end of this section, about sacrifices, how Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system that had been set up and that Jews had followed for centuries, millennia actually by the time of Jesus and by the time of the early church. So let's talk a minute about sacrifices because even that word is a little bit churchy and and kind of strange. We don't usually hear the word sacrifice that often. Um, So what do we mean when we say sacrifice? So to sacrifice something in the context of Judaism and Christianity is to slaughter or surrender something in offering to God. Okay? Okay. So, in Old Testament tradition, yeah, we have a picture here of an altar. Um, it's like a representation of the altar in the temple. This giant fire pit, basically. And its intent is to be the place where you offer things to God. And it's a real amazing visual, right? Because this thing that you offer, that you're devoting, is consumed. And so it's this idea that to devote something to God is to allow it to be consumed by him. And it literally turns into smoke, which then raises up to heaven. And so it helps with this idea that you're giving something over and it's going to God. So sacrifices. We don't really understand this very well because we don't do it. We don't do animal sacrifice anymore, thankfully. Although there is something really amazingly um I don't know the word. It just affirms really the value of a life when you're giving it to God and offering. And sometimes I think the ancient Hebrews did that better than we do. We kind of, with meat factorization, farming, we kind of put that aside and don't really think about the value of animal life. Um, but there, in the Old Testament, there were five kinds. If you're interested in sacrifices, Leviticus 1 through 7 is the place to kind of get the overview. So there were five kinds. They could be animal or they could be grain. Um, But really, those five kinds of sacrifices came down to two categories. One um, was sacrifices of devotion, love, and thanksgiving. And those were optional. So this is when you're so thankful that God did something to deliver you and you want to bring a sacrifice and offer a sacrifice. Or you're thankful for a good harvest and you want to offer that sacrifice. The second kind is one of atonement, which just means covering. It's something that you offered payment for a wrongdoing and this could be a collective wrongdoing so the people of God who are messing up on the regular in small ways or it could be a giant wrongdoing Um, someone gets murdered someone steals something really important Um, there could be um, any any number of wrongdoings that would be atoned for in that way and those sacrifices were mandatory and that's the kind of sacrifice that we're going to learn about, <clears throat> excuse me in Hebrews this morning. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, good. Um, so why sacrifices? It seems so random, right? I do something wrong so I'm going to kill an animal. <laughs> Just seems like a little disconnected. So there's a few reasons why sacrifice, animal sacrifice in particular, um, was practiced in scripture, and we're going to talk about that. So the first is it really affirms the cost of sin. So when we think about sin, which is missing the mark, either by something we do or something we don't do, it's misaligning with what God desires. And when we do that, or don't do that, and that results in sin, then that brings death somehow into the community, into the camp, into our lives, or the lives of others. So, By sacrificing an animal, by killing an animal, we are having depicted for us, and actually sometimes even participating in the depiction of, the death that that brings. The cost of our sin. Also, these animals weren't free. This was an agrarian society, right? Ancient Hebrew society. And to offer an animal, you had to buy it. (laughs) It was part part of your bank account. Um, And so you were saying symbolically and literally, I'm giving something of value back to God to atone for, to cover for the value that I've taken. And it's interesting that there's some reparation that goes with that. Um, Usually there is confession that goes with that and also um, some sort of restitution. So you couldn't just, you know, if you've done something wrong, something horrible to someone else, It wouldn't just be, okay, God, I'm going to sacrifice this animal and and show you I'm sorry and understand the cost of what I've done. You also then had to say, I've done this wrong thing. I confess that I've done this wrong thing. And then you had to go make restitution for it, which was generally paying back all of what the value of whatever you'd taken insofar as you were able, plus a fifth. So plus 20% more. So it's a way of demonstrating with value, that you understand the value of what you've taken. And then lastly, this idea that only the pure can make pure. So if you read the descriptions in Leviticus about the animals that were supposed to be sacrificed, they were supposed to be unblemished, they were supposed to be young, they were supposed to be healthy, and the the kind of animals you wouldn't want to kill would be the kind that were selected for animal sacrifice. And that's because of this idea. That only the pure can make pure. And in giving that pure thing, it is somehow, and this is the mysterious part of it, it doesn't really make sense, but it somehow, in this ritual, transfers its purity to you. So that's why the sprinkling of the blood, right? This very odd image that we don't understand making things clean by sprinkling blood everywhere. That does not make things clean, right? But it does in a symbolic way if you understand it's the life force of that pure thing that is being shared with impure things. And somehow there's a substitution. So that's the why. Let's dive in and actually read the passage in Hebrews. Um, Chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. We're just going to go right through it together. And I want you to pay attention to that idea of sacrifices because that is what he's focusing on, what this the preacher is focusing on here. The old system, so the system we just talked about, the system of animal sacrifice, under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why, when Christ came into the world, He said to God, and this is a quote from Scripture, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the Scriptures. First Christ said you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. He cancels it. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, our GHP, right, great high priest, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. It's once for all time, and it continues to happen. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven... There is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So with this whole diatribe on sacrifices and how Jesus is better, he's contrasting the old and the new, right? Sacrifices are unable to accomplish anything in an ultimate way. Only Jesus can do that. So let's look at our little list here. If the old system is, all these things were mentioned. It's a preview. It's repetitive. You have to do it over and over and over. Because it's repetitive, it continues to remind you of your guilt because it never actually gets the job done. It purifies, but it only purifies on the outside. It doesn't change your heart or your mind. It's insufficient and it's temporary. So if Jesus is none of those things, if Jesus is through his work, his sacrificial work negates the old, fulfills it and replaces it so it doesn't it's not needed anymore. Then what would Jesus list be? It's not a preview, it's what? Finished product. The real thing, finished product. Exactly. It's not repetitive, it's once, once for mm-hmm. all time. It doesn't remind you of your guilt. What does it do with your guilt? Takes it away. Washes it away. It doesn't purify you only on the outside. It does what? It purifies you on the inside. It's not insufficient. It's sufficient sufficient and it's not temporary. It's forever. forever. It's permanent. It's permanent. So I was thinking about this, the whole idea that Jesus is better. And in this particular instance with sacrifices, what the preacher of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying is that better means more than just better. <laughs> better means it's so much better. It makes the old thing obsolete. You don't need the old thing anymore. And I was thinking about this because I went to the eye doctor this week. It's been like three years since I've had a checkup because I don't need like new prescriptions that often anymore. And I'm sitting there in the chair. How many of you have had an eye exam? Pretty much everybody, okay, okay. So you know when they stick that thing in front of your face, that giant thing, and they click like, you know, the one lens, you know, selection, and then they do the next one, and they're like, better A or B? Better B or A? And I just, I get so freaked out and like nervous. (laughs) I don't know, I just don't, he's just saying A or B, and I wanna be like, i like pickles like i don't i don't know i don't know because you know like and he asks me to like verbalize these things i don't think about like okay so it's a little bit blurry on the outer edge but it just i don't know it's still blurry the other one's blurry too i can't verbalize that for you anyway so i'm all like flustered um and that's fine whatever i'm a grown-up i made it through um (laughs) barely um if he put those drops in your eyes and so you feel like you're like staring at the surface of the sun. I was talking with Lori about this because they dilate your pupils. Anyway, I made it through. But not before I asked him, I went in there with like a mission. I wanted to ask him about surgery because my brother had LASIK surgery. So you got you guys have heard of LASIK? Yeah. Surgery, yeah, they don't call it LASIK anymore because there's like this whole like, well, I guess they do, but there's more than LASIK. So it's it's, you know, refractive surgery is what he called it. Um and I was asking about it because my brother had it done, and he loves it. He says, the best thing ever. Um, and it's been a while, and so, like, I'm not an early adopter. You guys know this about me. Definitely not an early adopter. So, like, I'm like, all right, if you're going to go blind in a few years, I'm just going to let that happen to you, and then I won't do it, right? So, so but he's great. He hasn't gone blind. Um, and loved it. So I was asking him about it, and he was like, yeah, you know, they use a laser, plug your ears if you're grossed out easily, they use a laser to like reshape your eye. So they like shave off parts of your eye with a hot laser. Like sounds awful, and it's also amazing because it actually reshapes your cornea so that it functions differently and you're able to see without corrective lenses, contacts or glasses. So I was thinking about this idea of becoming obsolete, and I was thinking about how that compares. That if I had LASIK surgery, you know, my brother doesn't wear glasses anymore, right? He doesn't need them. These are an appliance. These don't fix the problem. If I had surgery, if I had LASIK surgery, I wouldn't need corrective lenses anymore because my eyesight would be fixed. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying about these sacrifices. They helped insofar as they were able. But they were only an appliance. They couldn't actually fix the problem. The reason they're not needed anymore, once we have Jesus, is that we've had the surgery. We don't need corrective lenses anymore. And actually, there's a warning later in the passage, and it kind of compares to the idea that if we continue to wear corrective lenses after we have the surgery that fixes the problem, we can actually do damage, right? It can cause eye strain, cause headaches, cause problems. We have to trust the completion of what has happened. Here's the thing, though. I've worn glasses since second grade. I did wear contacts for a short time in high school, but they're, like, legit a part of my identity. When I look at myself like this, I think I look weird. Like, I can't see myself very well because I've had glasses since second grade, so that's... (laughs) That's a good thing. But if I get right up close to the mirror, I'm like, wow, that looks strange. You know, I'm just, I'm used to it. And what happens is when we do these things over and over and over and over and over and over and they become part of our identity, it's hard to let them go. Mm -hmm. It's hard to let them go. And we have to sit back and remember, wait, but why do I have the glasses? Like, what are they for? And that's what the preacher is saying. Wait. Wait. Why do you have the sacrifices? What are they for? You don't need them anymore. You don't need them anymore. So why is this good news? Jesus is like this surgeon, right, that comes in and fixes the eyesight so that you don't need glasses anymore. What is the good news that these sacrifices that Jesus completes for us bring us to? Let's look at verses 19 to 22. From Hebrews 10. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with Amen. sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled, there we go with the image, sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. It's kind of reminiscent of baptism. Is that it? Yeah, I didn't finish the quote on my page here. Um, So I have to admit, when I was reading... um, this chapter. I agreed to teach before I read the passage. Um, Never a good idea. And so then I read the passage and I was like, "Uh, okay, I'm going to spend the whole time talking about sin and sacrifice. And I have a little bit of trauma in my past around this idea of sin and a little bit of PTSD talking about it. And maybe some of you can relate. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a very conservative, very loving, very well meaning, um, very different environment than I'm in now. And here was the message of God and myself that I received in that environment um, I'm a sinner. Amen. God can't tolerate sin. So, Jesus has to protect God from me by dying and covering me in himself. God can't even look at me, but thankfully he sees me through Jesus. I hope in there you can hear some of what made that message traumatic. The message that comes through is, you're disgusting. God can't stand to look at you. God doesn't want to be with you. Jesus is the only reason God can be with you. God doesn't want to look at you, so he has to look through Jesus. That's, first of all, not the foundation of a healthy, growing, vibrant, loving relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not the gospel. How many of you have at least heard that message in some form? And I won't make you raise your hands, but um, (laughs) perhaps some of you have believed it. Perhaps some of you have believed it. I have spent years unlearning this message, um, and it comes down to trust. It's really hard to trust a God who is disgusted by you. It's really hard to want to draw near to a God who can't stand to look at you. Mm -hmm. And that would be okay. If it's hard, it's hard. But if it's true and hard, I still need to swallow it. But when I started to look at Scripture again, the story of God, the larger witness of Scripture and the church, I realized there's something really wrong with that way of thinking. So let's tease that out a minute because I feel like if we're going to look at this and pay it full attention, sin and sacrifices in Hebrews, we need to tease this out. Okay, so what's the problem with that message? Well, first of all, if we're going to begin at the beginning, Genesis, we love to hear Genesis. Um, If we're going to begin at the beginning, let's let the story tell us where to start. The story that I always started with was sin. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. That's where I started. That's not, that's not, that's not where God starts. That's not where the story starts. The story starts with... In the beginning, God, the story starts with God. Let's look at God. Who is the God in the first two chapters of Genesis? God's creative, God's orderly, God is tender, hovering over the waters like a mother bird hovers over eggs. God notices, God cares about the fact that the human was alone. God is collaborative, God is asking this human to do things that are fulfilling and good. God is this amazing, relational, beautiful, artistic, powerful, incredible being. That's where all of our stories start. Amen. And in love and in joy and in the desire to share this amazing thing God was creating, he created us Mm -hmm. and then said, Wow, that is good. It's really good. That's where our story starts. It doesn't stop there, right? Chapter 3, the serpent comes and tempts Eve, and she disobeys. She disrespects God. She takes something that he has asked her not to take. But for the longest time, I didn't pay attention to the nuance in that interaction. And I need to bring us here for a minute because it connects with what the preacher of Hebrews says. The serpent says to Eve, and I don't have it up on the screen because we refer to Genesis every other week here, so I know you guys all know it by heart. But the serpent comes to her with a question. Did God really say? He introduces doubt. He introduces This thought that maybe I don't know God as well as I thought I did. Maybe I'm not his inner counsel. Maybe he's actually got a bestie who's not me. Maybe he's holding out. And then the serpent says, You're not going to die. You're not going to die. God doesn't want you to have that because it's going to make you like him, which is so ironic. Because of the two of them, who is more like God? Who is more like God? Eve. Eve. Here the serpent is telling the one fashioned in God's image that she can't have something that's going to make her like what she already is. And it makes me think maybe that is the serpent's best tool. Maybe that is the enemy's best tool with us to make us believe we don't have something that God has already given us so that we try to get it a different way. So if I'm Eve in that moment, I'm feeling really stupid, really taken, really exposed. I thought I was God's best friend. I thought if there was anything going on here, he would have told me. But I'm hearing third person, I'm hearing through another party that there's some withholding happening And what Eve does is what all of us do. She takes that shame and she makes a choice to be in control of her own destiny and to cut God out. I'm not going to let that be in my life. I'm not going to let somebody pull me close and then say, you're not my best friend after all. And I'm going to be in control of my own destiny. It doesn't matter if it's off limits or not. So, that's the story. That's where God begins. Sin sin does spread like fire, right? We know this, and it's just as destructive. The implications of what happened with Adam and Eve are so far-reaching, we can't measure it. And Jesus as we're told in Hebrews 1, is the exact imprint of God. The exact imprint of God. And he takes sin seriously. Actually, even more than we do. We did a sermon series not long ago on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to where Jesus said, you know, you're worried about violence. I'm worried about hate. Let's talk about the thing under the thing. You're worried about adultery and infidelity in your marriage. I'm actually worried about lust. Like, Jesus takes sin seriously. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't take sin seriously. What I'm saying is, there's a trust connection that existed before sin, that sin broke. And that's where the heartache is. That's where the distance is. God isn't running from me because he can't stand me. I ran from God. What happens... What happens after Eve and Adam sin? What's scene to? They, they hide. But before they hide, Forrest, what does God do? He looks, he looks for them. He looks for them. He comes to them. This is not a God who can't even look. This is not a God who jets in the other direction. This is a God who comes close despite our mess despite it we're not saying it's not a mess sin is serious it costs life it brings death but it's not an excuse for god to stay away god never stays away so if this is how jesus works How do we understand, then, this idea of the trust being restored? How do we understand this? Let's look again at um, verses 19 to 25. Let's just read that again. And then we'll close. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. I just want to tell you, I think it's so beautiful and cool with that whole um, Genesis 1-3 through in the back of our minds to tell you that that word boldly, confidently, the connotation there is full assurance of belovedness. That's why we can go back. That's why Jesus' sacrifice is like the surgery that fixes it all. Because it shows us, no, God's not holding out on you. God is not even staying away from you now that you've ruined everything. God is worthy of trust. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. So we can boldly, with full assurance of love, enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain, which actually, the actual phrase there is through his flesh, through his flesh, So Jesus becomes the curtain, he becomes the priest, he becomes the sacrifice, he becomes the temple, he becomes God, he becomes human. Those things are all, every character in this story is Jesus, every single one, even the sacrifice. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in, right in. It's your birthright. This is the God who made you and loves you and is coming for you, not in a way of, like, fear, but who won't leave you and let you go. Let us go right in, into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. Amen. Fully trusting him. So... Now what then? I mean, if that's what God accomplished for us, that's amazing. That's amazing. But Christianity is not only a vertical relationship, right? Right. There is definitely always a horizontal component. So what does it mean for us? Not just me. What does it mean for us? And this is a big deal for the congregation that's receiving this letter, this sermon, because they are in a bad way. They have been under persecution. The letter references imprisonment. The letter references possessions being taken, lives being taken. This is not just, I'm not feeling like coming to church this morning because I'd rather sleep in. This is like, if I go, I might be identified Mm -hmm. as one of the followers of Jesus and lose everything because of it. So what do we do? Because we have this trust in the love of God restored because of what we've seen Jesus do for us. What we do, if we look at um, the next slide, Kiva. So don't throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you'll receive all that he has promised. So it's actually not on that slide. I'm not sure if it's on the slide before. Um, But there is a list that we're given. I'll actually read it to you here. There is a list that the author gives of things that we're to do. Boldly enter heaven's most high because of the blood of Jesus, right? But hold tightly, it says. Hold tightly, without wavering, to the hope we affirm. Think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So here's basically what he's saying. It's easy to forget. It's really, 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 really easy to forget. We're forgetful people. We get tired. We get discouraged. And what we are called to do is to hold this story for each other. We have to hold this story for each other and keep telling it over and over. Remember who God is. Remember that creator, that good God who loves you and comes close to you. Remember that you need him remember that he became the sacrifice for you, your high priest who then crawls onto the altar and says, I'll take it, I'll take the place. Hold tightly, motivate one another, meet together and encourage one another. And it's so interesting, it says meet together when we've been trying to figure this whole thing out the last year and a half. But it doesn't just mean Sunday morning. Right? It's texts, it's phone calls, it's going for walks, it's going for coffees, it's reaching out in connection to remind each other that God loves you and God can be trusted. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that tells us the true story of the gospel. That doesn't start with our yuck, but it starts with your goodness. Thank you for becoming every character in the story. For being our Moses, our Adam, our David. For being our law, our prophet, our temple, our promised land. For being our priest our brother, our sacrifice. Help us to unlearn the things that aren't true about you and to receive anew the trust that you want us to have. You're not holding out on us. You want us to have everything you have all I have is yours, the father says to the older son in the prodigal son's story. It's all yours. Thank you for loving us that way. We don't deserve it. Our sin has cost everything. But you have come close because we don't disgust you. You love us. You love us. Help us to love and encourage one another.